Rabbi Laura Jonathan Sachs believed profoundly in the power of the written word and authored many books and articles that addressed major trends and issues of the day through the lens of Jewish values and Jewish texts. In an effort to honor his creative contributions and scholarship, Yeshiva University has created the Sachs Book Prize, generously funded by the Rohr family, to broaden the impact of Jewish scholarship in the arena of contemporary Jewish thought. The prize aims to recognize recent publications of ideas deeply sourced in Jewish texts with wide appeal within and beyond the Jewish community. I'm Dr. Shira Weiss, Assistant Director of Yeshiva University's Sachs Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership, and I'm thrilled to present my conversations with this year's winner and finalists. Dr. Daniel Gordas is the Korah Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College. The author of 13 books, Gordas also writes the widely read blog and podcast on Substack, Israel from the Inside, which have tens of thousands of subscribers. Congratulations on being awarded the Rabbi Sachs Book Prize of 2023 for Impossible Takes Longer, 75 years after its creation, has Israel fulfilled its founders' dreams. The judges felt that of all the submissions, your book made a great contribution to contemporary Jewish scholarship. So mazel tov, and thank you for being here. Shira, first of all, thank you. I am very, very deeply honored by the prize. Uh, these are tough times in Israel, so to have a book about Israel and its mission and its vision, get that kind of recognition feels like a very healing step on the part of the judges, but I'm personally very honored as well. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Wonderful. So Rabbi Sachs, the namesake of this book prize, wrote a lot about the significance of the state of Israel as it relates to Jewish identity. How have his ideas in general, or particularly about Zionism, impacted your thinking? Well, I'll start by sharing a, a personal memory of Rabbi Sachs and me and Israel. Um, I didn't meet Rabbi Sachs, I don't think, until after the Intifada, which went on from 2000 to 2004. After that, I was blessed to have several long conversations with him. But several times during the, the Intifada, I, I was writing a very different kind of a blog back then. Technology was different. And I would send something out. And the first time that it happened, I actually thought it was a joke. But some woman with a very, very elegant British accent called me up and said, this is Daniel Gordis. And I said, yes. And she said, will you please hold for the chief rabbi? And I thought it was a joke, uh, but it wasn't. It was Rabbi Sachs calling to say something very kind uh, about a piece that I had just written about Israel. And he probably did that over the course of those years a dozen times. There was no reason for a man of his stature with his kind of obligations to reach out to some guy in Jerusalem writing a blog. But he did it on numerous occasions, and it touched me really very, very deeply. When you read what he wrote about Israel and what he said about Israel, you understand that he understood in the clearest way possible that in a very large way what Israel was, was the revival of the Jewish people in the fullness of its essence. He spoke so often about the miracle of the revival of Hebrew. Language for him was, of course, more than a tool. It was an art form, and his English was just simply uh, inimitable. In its, in its beauty. Uh, but he understood the, the beauty of all languages. And he, well, he wrote and spoke very often about the gorgeousness of Hebrew. He spoke about what it means for Jews to be able to defend themselves. He spoke at great length about the way in which Israel rep represents the rebirth of the Jewish people after the worst period of its existence, perhaps since Hurban Bayichini, the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, so he really understood the majesty and the miracle, and even the mystery of what's happening in Israel. 
And um, I was very blessed that he called me on several occasions to, to actually share that. So to have this prize be in his name and in his memory and his honor, and therefore for me to be associated with it makes the, the meaning of it and the gratitude that I feel even deeper. Let's get into some of the ideas in your book. You present a balanced assessment of Israel's successes and failures when measured against the founders' aspirations. And you identify Israel's greatest accomplishment as the transformation of the Jewish people. You write, Israel was meant to eradicate the sense of vulnerability, the previous fear, the Jews' sensibility of always being the victim on call. Its success in doing just that has made possible an astounding Jewish rebirth. Iran's genocidal threats may well force Israel to decide whether it will risk many thousands of Israeli lives to preserve the new Jewish lease on life. On the other hand, you write, what is at stake is nothing less than the very purpose of the state itself, the transformation of the Jewish people, which is Israel's greatest accomplishment. Can you elaborate on this a bit? You know, when I wrote that, probably, I guess, in rough draft two and a half, two, two and a half years ago, I was writing in that chapter about Iran and the threat that Iran's getting a nuclear weapon would fate, would create for Israel. Because what the argument that I made was that the flourishing of Jewish life that we experience here in Israel, the rebirth of optimism, the sense of creativity, the high birth rate among totally secular Tel Aviv women um, is all about Jews finally not living under the threat of what we'd always lived under. I mean, our, our liturgy is filled with it. The Tanakh is filled with it. Sifrut Chazal is filled with it. Israel changed that dramatically. And when I wrote this a couple of years ago, I, I really believed it. But I have to say, listening to you say it now, I'm struck by how much the tragic six weeks or so that we're living in now, and they're tragically, I think, going to go on for much longer than six weeks, uh, how this made it even more true. In other words, the horrors of October 7th don't need to be enumerated here, but what does need to be stated is the unbelievable way in which the Israeli people have responded. Uh, we don't know anybody our age who doesn't have somebody at the front, but we also don't know anybody our age who's not out there volunteering, who's not out there doing something. Uh, it was, uh, we we were hurt. We were, we were caught off guard. We were murdered. We were slaughtered on October 7th, but we're not fearful. And what you hear people saying now is, we know what can happen when you have an enemy across the border in the South. Well, we can't live that way in the North either. I don't know anybody in this country who is yearning for yet another front, but there is a yearning not to live this way anymore. And I think in a certain way, what's been reborn in the last month and a half is an awareness of exactly the quote that you read, that we were about, Israel was about eradicating the sense of vulnerability, fear, the sensibility of always being a victim on call. Uh, we slipped. We slipped badly, as I think everybody knows. Right. And the work that Israel's doing right now is about recovering that. You also identify another success, which we have witnessed in recent history. You write, Israel has moved from being a tiny dot in a sea of hostile Arab states to being ever more tied diplomatically, economically, technologically, and even militarily with countries that not long ago openly hoped that Israel would be destroyed. I was wondering, how do you conceive the, of the benefits, but also the dangers of these ties? And what do you anticipate will be the future of these relations? Again, Shira, you know, it's hard to answer that question now the same way one would have answered it seven weeks ago. Um, 
Israel would be in a very different position today if it wasn't for the fact that Egypt is keeping its part of the border with Gaza sealed shut so that weapons are not coming in and Hamas leaders are not sneaking out. One of the very possible reasons, and we won't know this for sure for many years probably, but one of the possible reasons for the choice of the timing of this horror was that the Palestinians were actually trying to prevent the Saudi deal from going through. I'm not an expert in this at all, but my own personal guess is that it won't have worked. In other words, right now in the midst of war, the Saudis have to say exactly what all the other Arab countries are saying about the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Jews. Uh, that's just kind of the dance that they have to dance. But the interests that the Saudis had in mind, fear of Iran, Israel's technology, access to the Mediterranean, a whole array of issues, and a recognition that Israel's not going anywhere and that Israel's a thriving state, which is going to be even more of a thriving state after this is all over, perhaps battered, perhaps economically shaken, but much more of a thriving state. Uh, it's still in their interest to, to be in a relationship with us. We've seen now in six weeks that Bahrain and the UAE have said a thing or two here and there, but they have not in any way intimated that they're pulling back from the Abraham Accords. The Middle East has changed, and part of what the Palestinians were trying to do is to get the Middle East to adhere to their worldview, which is that Israel can still be destroyed. That should be the goal when the rest of the Arab world has moved on. So the the, the benefits, I, I have to say, I think are, are numerous. I mean, I, I was in uh, the UAE not all that long ago. Uh, the number of kosher restaurants there is much greater than the number of kosher restaurants in many American cities. It's kind of unbelievable. And um, no, but it's great for it's great for Israelis in terms of security. It's great for Israelis in terms of diplomacy. It's great for Israel in terms of economic opportunity and investment. Frankly, it's great to fly to the Far East that way, as opposed to having to go all the way around, which we used to have to do. Are there dangers of such ties? Well, obviously there are, because we experienced them on October 7th. The people who are not willing to embrace a new Middle East, the people who are not willing to embrace a world in which Israel is not only a given, but a thriving, flourishing given, are going to act in the most heinous, immoral, barbaric ways. Uh, that's, I guess, a danger of those ties. Um, but I think there's really very little downside to having a relationship with Egypt, uh, to having a relationship with Jordan. They're not as warm pieces yet mm -hmm. as are the relationships with UAE and Bahrain and so forth. Uh, but Saudi Arabia is going to follow, I would bet, uh, and I think it's just another example of the way in which Israel, to go back to the title of the book, has not only met some of its uh, founders' dreams, but actually trans, tr you know, gone beyond them. I don't transcended them. I don't think that um, David Ben Gurion, in his wildest imagination, he talked about peace. They all talked about peace, but I don't think in his wildest imagination he imagined Israel at peace with signed treaties with Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and then far beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've transcended some of the dreams. Many of the dreams we, of course, have not met, and I'm sure that you and I will talk about that. But in so many ways, we've actually transcended what they could have even remotely imagined, and we should be proud of that. Absolutely. In an effort to present a very balanced assessment, you're pretty candid about some of Israel's failures as well. You describe a long moral arc, and you write to echo Martin Luther King Jr.'s memorable belief that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And you mentioned the moral arc stretching from Kibyan, October 1953, to Gaza in May 21, and battles beyond that. How do you understand the historical and contemporary events along this arc? War is a horrible thing. 
And war is very often going to bring out, in some cases, the most noble, but in some cases, the most terrible. And you take enough frightened young people, 18, 19, 20, 25 years old, and put them in battle situations for long enough, uh, and they will occasionally do the wrong thing. Um, you take a country that in 1953 had only been in existence for five years, was still living under not only the shadow, but almost the smoke of the Shoah. And you have group after group after group coming in from Jordan and then killing someone in her home with her children. That's what That was what gave birth to Kibia in 1953. And I think there are times when a country will say, no, not, not anymore. That's That was the purpose of this country was we're not going to live that way. Uh, and what happened in Kibia was not okay. Ariel Sharon ran a unit called Unit 101. It was actually dismantled almost immediately after the Kibia incident. So my assessment of Kibia is hardly only mine. It was the assessment of the IDFs as well. That what mm -hmm. happened there wasn't okay. Houses were blown up, civilians were killed. There's a lot of debate. Did they know? Did they not know? We shouldn't go into all of that now. When we know what is under Shifa Hospital, and we know that the center of the nervous system of Hamas in Gaza is there, and we have for weeks told the world and told the doctors and told the patients, you need to get out because we are going to destroy what's underneath the hospital, and they don't get out. And we still don't bomb the hospital. And thank God we have technologies. We can send some robots into tunnels so we don't have to send young men and women. And we're doing it painstakingly and day by day. But I don't really know of any other army that would do what we're doing. I think the Americans in Afghanistan would have bombed that hospital a very long time ago. And I think the British and the French in Germany would have bombed, bombed that hospital a very, very long time ago. And as long as it does not take a heinous price in the lives of the young men and women that we've sent to the front. Uh, I take great pride in that uh, arc of the moral universe being long, but bending towards not necessarily justice in this case, but to doing the worst, which is fighting a war in the best way possible. Um, we have learned. We have learned. We also live, of course, under a relentless microscope on the part of the international community. So we have to not only be better than the rest of the world, uh, we have to be probably better than the rest of the world times X. Um, but again, there it, I don't think that there's anything uh, Jewishly uh, substantive that would say that when you see people holding white flags and walking from North Gaza to South Gaza that your heart shouldn't break. My heart breaks. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, what we need to do is guarantee the future of the Jewish people. And I believe that the IDF is doing it in a magnificently moral way. And we've learned a lot from Kibia in 1953 to Gaza City in 2023. And that's what I meant by that arc of the moral universe being long, but bending towards, if not justice, then at least the increasingly moral conduct of war. You've worked on this book over years. The book came out several months ago, and you describe in it the long-term Israeli-Palestinian conflict as two factually correct stories that are irreconcilable. You write, given unending European violence against the Jews and the closing of America's borders to immigration in 1924, Zionists had no alternative but to go home to Palestine. For their part, Arabs were inevitably going to see that return as a colonialist invasion that they simply had to resist. That, in a nutshell, you write, is what has the Israelis and Palestinians locked in an interminable conflict, often quiet, you say, but sometimes bloody. Is there a way now, in the midst of this crisis, is there a way to reconcile these two stories? 
I'm not really sure there was a way to reconcile the stories even before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, part of what arriving at some reconciliation would require is for everyone to recognize both the power of their own narrative and the way in which their own narrative speaks to them in a very, very significant, life-shaping kind of a way, but being willing to see that the other narrative, at least, as from the eyes or through the glasses of the other side wearing them. So um, Israelis see 1948 as a long awaited triumph after decades and decades and decades of trying to build a Jewish state, whereas Palestinians, quite rightly, by the way, see it as a catastrophe, regardless of who caused what and regardless of whose fault it was. When 60 or 70 percent of your population is no longer living in their houses at the end of the war, it's a catastrophe. And Nakba means catastrophe, and it's a catastrophe. Um, the question was, could we embrace an understanding that they went through a terrible period in the late 1940s? as they embraced an understanding that we had come home. I think many, many more Israelis were willing to embrace an understanding that they had gone through a very difficult period that will forever shape them, just as the Shoah will forever shape us. Uh, they are clearly, and if this was if we were dubious about this before, tragically, there is absolutely no uncertainty about it now. They're just simply not willing to see the world through our, when they say the river to the sea, they mean the river to the sea. We would read the Hamas charter about Israel having to be completely destroyed and would say, eh, they don't really they don't really mean that. Uh, they did. And I think now Israelis are going to be much more reticent to say, well, you know, that's just kind of bluster uh, or braggartry or whatever. How That's how that part of the culture of the world speaks. Uh, I don't think Israelis are going to say that anymore. So if I were to rewrite the book now, um, there's a lot that would have to be changed, obviously. There's a chapter on democracy, which we'll probably come to. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the two chapters that would clearly have to be changed the most are the chapter on democracy and the chapter on the Palestinians. And I am sadly much less optimistic about any resolution of the Palestinian conflict, I'm much less confident than I was when I wrote the book a couple of years ago. Uh, I think that what we're going to have is, is a renewed quiet like we had when I wrote the book but it's going to be a renewed quiet born not out of a sense that they can be contained, but out of a sense that we can contain them, which is slightly different. In other words, money and uh, increased economic security is not going to make them accept us. They're going to accept us because, as Jabotinsky put it, that they've hit an iron wall, which cannot be budged. Uh, and we're going to have to live that way for a very long time. It's tragic for them and for us, but I don't see any other way around it right now. Can you go a little bit further about how we can contain them, what you mean, or what Gaza would have to look like after this? The world is debating what happens in Gaza the morning after. Uh, Bibi has hinted that perhaps Israel's going to stay in for a very long time. Uh, Joe Biden is saying that it's going to get given over to the Palestinian Authority. Um, Nobody has any idea. Two Israeli politicians, both very thoughtful people who are not blowhards in any way, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying to the countries of the world, if each of you take 10,000, 100,000 of these people, we'll just disperse them. There's very few of them that are actually native to Gaza anyway. They just came to Gaza in 48 or 56, whenever, because of other wars. Um, that's also not likely to happen. I think nobody here knows 
has any real sense of what's going to happen at the morning after, both because we don't know what the world will permit. We don't know how successful we're going to be in destroying Hamas. We don't know how grievous will be the losses that Israelis have already paid and what they're going to demand or being willing to do. So I think, you know, when the Gemara says that prophecy was given over after Haggai Sarchayal Malachi, the Gemara says prophecy was given over to fools and children. Well, I'm definitely not a child. I would like not to be a fool. Uh, so I don't know. I think it'd be very, it would be silly to to, to prophesy. It's not going to be the Palestinian Authority if I had a bet. Palestinian Authority oh. has been has really not condemned the attacks of October seventh. Uh, people in the Palestinian Authority, the president, not Al Abbas, but the president, have said that uh, the 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 worldview of Hamas is actually an idea, and you can kill people, but you can't kill an idea, and that idea resides deeply in Fatah. Also, Israelis hear that and they actually believe it. So I think what we're going to have to make sure is that we are present enough in Gaza and in southern Lebanon that in Gaza they cannot build hundreds of miles of tunnels. We're going to have to be present enough to make sure that nothing happens that we don't know about. And when we figure out what to do about Lebanon, we're going to have to be present enough to make sure that 150,000 rockets, many of them with pinpoint accuracy, cannot be accumulated there under the very nose and eyes, obviously, of the United Nations, which doesn't care. Um, so we've allowed certain situations to develop that were obviously grievous mistakes on our part. And they led to a horrific loss of Israeli life. And young men and young women are still dying day by day as you and I are having this conversation. This is a brokenhearted, wounded, weeping country, but we will get through this. Um, and we are not, I think, going to allow ourselves to be near neighbors who are up to things that we simply don't know about. And if that means being in there, then that'll mean being in there. You just mentioned that you're far less optimistic about a reconciliation than you were when you were writing this book. But in your book, you present Micha Goodman's proposal to not end, but shrink the conflict by steps Israel could take without harming its security interests, including paving a network of roads under Palestinian control, linking Palestinian cantons, given, giving them the ability to travel through most of the territories without interacting with the IDF, transferring portions, um, which under Oslo Accords was to be negotiated after five years, but never was, expanding um, Palestinian work options in Israel, Israel halting settlement ex expansion and helping grow the Palestinian economy. How do you feel about such a proposal, especially now? What do you think is the general sentiment among Israelis regarding this or other proposals? Such an excellent question. I think most of us don't have the bandwidth. In other words, you know, I have a son on the front in the north. It's basically all I can think about. Uh, and when I had occasion to be in a conversation with Rabbi Seth Farber, who I'm sure is very well known to many of our listeners, just this mm -hmm. morning in his office, uh, he has a son in the north in a tank. Mm -hmm. And he brought somebody else in from the office who's married to a guy that I knew from camp many, 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 many years ago. They have a son in the north in a tank. Um, everybody here has somebody there. And um, it's very hard to think about what happens after this. I think there will be people. And I will share that 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 sentiment that say, uh, look, the Palestinians aren't going anywhere. And if we want our children not to have to live in Sparta, then we're going to have to figure out a way to make accommodations so that those who are willing to live beside us can. And that's what I was quoting mm -hmm. Micha Goodman, who I think is one of Israel's most important public intellectuals by far. Sure. The question is, are Israelis going to think when this is all over that Fatah is more like what I was describing there, or more like the Hamas that we're at war with now? 
That depends to a large extent on what happens in Yehudah Shomron, Judea and Samaria, which some people call the West Bank, between now and the end of this conflict. And it depends a lot on the mood of Israelis. It's very hard for me to assess. Um, you know, people don't typically rise to their most noble when they're afraid or when they're angry. I mean, we see that with children, we see it with spouses, we see it with friends, we see it at work. Uh, the time to have really far-reaching reconcil reconciling conversations is when pain and anger and fury and worry have all somewhat dissipated. Uh, Micha's right. In an ideal world, that's what we have to try to make happen. The world is just not ideal. And are Israelis going to have a stomach for that? Can an Israeli politician even imagine getting up in front of a crowd and saying, I want to suggest the following accommodations to the Palestinians without mm -hmm. being laughed off the stage, whether he or she is from Meretz or from Ben Gvir's party, if that's some sort of spectrum. Uh, I don't know that in 2023, 24, 25, an Israeli politician of any party could use the word accommodation to the Palestinians. Uh, don't forget, right? I mean, when the, when the German reparations were offered to Israel in the early 1950s, it brought this country to blows, literally to blows. Tear gas was, was blown into the windows, the broken windows of the Knesset. Menachem Begin was suspended. He said to the government that he would tell his followers to go there and to use violence to make sure that this didn't happen. Wow. Uh, because as far as Begin was concerned, th there, there was something sacred about the memory of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. um, there's something sacred about the 1,400 people who were burnt and beheaded and murdered and kidnapped. Um, I don't know how quickly this country is going to be willing to have that conversation. And I say that not critically, because I don't know how quickly I'm going to be ready to have that conversation. We're We're hurting. And right. I think it's the wrong time to try to figure out what we're going to do when we're not hurting anymore. Mm -hmm. You write that decades after independence, that comment in the Declaration of Independence about the recognition of Israel being, being irrevocable seems downright prophetic. You say it's lost on no one that were the UN vote about Israel's existence to be taken again today, the proposal for a Jewish state would have no chance of passing. Can you describe the founders' motivation for including such a comment and what they may have anticipated about the global perception of the state of Israel? What the founders knew in 1948 was that the State Department of the United States was already working to get the UN resolution on partition brought back to the General Assembly for a revote. And it had barely squeaked through on November 29th, 1947, Kaftet de November, as we commonly call it. It was not going to pass even in early 1948. Now, why did they want to redo the vote in 1948? Don't forget, we're right after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. There is a sense that Harry Truman, for whatever set of reasons, some of them being Eddie Jacobson, but not all of them, um, was likely to recognize the state of Israel, even though the State Department urged him not to do that. Uh, and if the United States recognized the state of Israel, the argument meant went, um, it's going to have to defend the state of Israel. And the Jews, quote unquote, the Jews, as the State Department memo called them, and not the Israelis, the Jews, that's pretty important. Well, he couldn't have called them the Israelis in fairness because Israel didn't exist. But still, there's something about calling them the Jews. You could have said the Jewish community, the Jewish, whatever, but something about this phrase, the Jews, sort of just in 1947, 48, is just unthinkable. But in any event, 
They said they're going to hold out for a year or two at best. The CIA's estimation was that we would be able to hold out for two years, and then we were going to lose. And then they said, well, Harry Truman will will have recognized the state of Israel, and we're going to have to go in. And the Americans do not want to send their boys overseas again. They just got back from the Second World War. The GIs want to go to college. They want to have families. We want to rebuild this economy. Uh, We don't want a war in the Middle East. For that reason, the State Department said, we got to try to prevent this Israeli-Jewish state thing from happening in the first place. And already in the early months of 1948, they are trying to bring the vote back to the United Nations, and it would not have passed. Ben-Gurion knows that. And so therefore, when the Declaration of Independence is written and they say, and that vote is not revocable, it's his way of saying to the world, we know what you're up to. It's not changeable. This is not open to another vote. The vote passed, the country exists, we're declaring independence, and you can say whatever you want to say in the General Assembly. And oh my, have they said whatever they've wanted to say in the General Assembly ever since? 1975, Zionism is racism, it can go on and on. Right. He said, we're here, we're here to stay. Uh, so it was prophetic, but not entirely without data. He knew very well what was going on in the State Department, and the Declaration of Independence was worded that way to put a stop to any aspiration that anyone outside the country might have had of ending the state at the General Assembly. You also distinguish between the founding of the Israeli and American governments. You write, Israel was never meant to be the sort of democracy that Jefferson, Hamilton, and Madison had in mind for the U.S. It was founded for a different purpose, the future of the Jewish people, not with a political experiment of self-governance that had implications for the entire world like the U.S., I knew you just mentioned earlier that you would rewrite the democracy chapter in the book, but what sort of democracy is the state of Israel in your opinion? Sammy Smuha, who's a scholar at Haifa University, a really brilliant guy, has this phrase that he uses that I quote a lot in the book called ethnic democracy. Mm-hmm. And ethnic democracy is a democracy. There's freedom of speech, freedom of the press, everybody votes, etc. But it's ethnic in the sense that the purpose of the democracy is the flourishing of one particular ethnicity, culture, religion, community, et cetera, within that. That is not what the United States is, right? Let's just take a hypothetical here, right? Let's say we're talking in 2023. Let's say 50 years from now, right? So 2073. America is mostly Hispanic. That, by the way, is what the demography seems to be. America will be mostly Hispanic. And so therefore, Congress is mostly Hispanic. And the president of the United States, she or he, is Hispanic. Is that a success or a failure of American democracy? I would say, as long as the elected officials embody the values that Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, and so forth had in mind, of course, it's a success of American democracy. Uh, People would have said back then, you know, if there's Jews on the Supreme Court, is that what's that going to be about? Well, there's plenty of Jews on the Supreme Court, and it seems to function not too badly. Uh, There's plenty of Jews in all kinds of political positions in America. It's not what the Christian founders probably ever imagined, but we've made, I think, a huge contribution. But let's say Israel now in 50 years, in 2073, is mostly Arab because Jews have left, because Israel's not as safe, because of birth rates, because whatever, doesn't we can, we can hypothesize any scenario. And therefore the Knesset is mostly Arab and therefore the prime minister is an Arab woman or an Arab man. Is that a failure or a success of Israeli democracy? What I argue in the book is, well, it's the success of the apparatus of the democracy. Yes, it's, you know, one man, one woman, one person, one vote, all that, that's all well and good. But it fundamentally vitiates the purpose for which Israel was created. It was not created to be ethnicity blind. Mm -hmm. America at its best should be. Of course, it's not. 
but it should be race blind and ethnicity blind and religion blind when it comes to law, when it comes to politics and so on and so forth. It's not, we know that. And we're unfortunately as American Jews experiencing a horrible period for American Jews right now, which is just as painful in a very different kind of way as what's going on here. Right. But Israel was not meant to be ethnicity blind. This country was created for the purpose of the flourishing of the Jewish people. So if if the poem at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, the great Colossus says, give me your tired, your poor, you know, teeming masses yearning to breathe free. I'm a Lazarus, obviously. Um, we are not about teeming masses yearning to breathe free. We are, as it says in the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence, the land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. We are about the Jewish people flourishing in the land of Israel. So it is not ethnic blind. It's always going to be a delicate dance. Um, and it's not always going to be exactly what a liberal democracy in Western Europe or North America might look like. That's okay. As long as we're trying to make sure that all individuals have the civic and legal rights that are accorded to them, uh, the, 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 the centrality of Jewishness, of Jewish life, of Jewish substance, of Jewish symbols in Israel's society seems to me not only not to be problematic, it's the very purpose of the state. Do you think Israel will ever ratify a constitution? You, you argue that many Israelis are convinced that divisions over issues like the role of religion and borders could bring down the entire often unspoken social contract to the heart of Israeli society. So again, you know, there's before and there's after. Had we had this conversation on October 6th, which was a Friday, so we would have snuck it in before <laughs> Shabbat Israel time. Um, I would have said, nah, we're not going to pass a constitution, and that's okay. It, mm -hmm. it is too fragile. It is too this. And don't forget, on October 6th, we were still in the middle of the whole judicial reform thing. Yes. Um, and we were very worried about coming to blows. People were talking about civil war. Ehud Barak was worried about civil war. The IDF was worried about civil war. Um, it was a really very serious concern. That's before. Uh, what's happened since then? Israelis have bonded together in a way that's really would have been unimaginable. I mean, the pilots who refused to fly two and a half hours later were in their cockpits. Um, the brothers at arms, Achim Laneshek, which is now brothers and sisters at arms, uh, they had built this whole national apparatus to get people out to protests, which they converted instantaneously on Shabbat afternoon already. The first Hamals were opening, the first mm. war rooms, but they're war rooms for civilian purposes, clothing, toys, medicines, giving people rides to places because people were fleeing and they needed stuff. Um, look, 2,000 Haredi men just volunteered for the IDF. And they've already finished, they did a very, very quick kind of, you know, training. basic training, and they've just finished, and there was this thing on social media, they're singing Hatikva. Now, if you said to me on October 6th, a month and a half ago, um, there's going to be 2,000 Haredi men one day, and they're all going to go volunteer, and the IDF is going to be so happy to have them, it's going to cut back basic training, and then they're all going to sing Hatikva together. I would say to you, yeah, and I'd like to have <laughs> some of that scotch that you're drinking. Um, <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. Right. But it has happened. And you see religious and secular people having a sense of shared destiny. By the way, compare what happened in May 21 with Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs uh, to what's happening now. Druze men are falling on the yeah. battlefields and Israeli Jews are honoring them. And um, Israeli Arabs are obviously overwhelmingly not in the army, but there are some um, and they are also serving. I think everything that we thought about Israeli society before is now up for grabs. People want to know, what's this war going to be called? Like the Simchat Torah war just seems kind of weird. Yeah. Um, Yom Kippur war, okay, but Simchat Torah, don't forget yeah. here, of course, 
Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah were the same day. The Hamas war, the Gaza war, the 23 war, people are suggesting, and I don't think it will happen, but people are suggesting we call it the second war of independence. Really? Because every assumption that we made about this country has been upended. We're finally safe. Actually, we're not. The army is amazing. Now it is, but then it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Intelligence is world-class. They know what they need to know. They didn't, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So um, many people, uh, Yedidya Stern, I think, has suggested this. Uh, other people have as well. You know, Milchemet Atzmot Now, by the way, there's precedent for that because we refer to the two, we refer to the 2006 war as the Second Lebanon War. Milchemet Lebanon Ashniya. So we actually do already have a paradigm of calling something Milchemet X. Hashniyah, the second X war. So some people are saying the second war of independence. Now, I don't think that'll happen, but who knows? But only I only raise it because it's a way of sort of concretizing for many of our listeners the degree to which everything here is up for grabs. So we had this conversation on October 6th. I'd say we're not having no constitution. Now, I I don't know. I, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of a national conversation do we decide we need to have? Is the ugliness and the rhetoric going to bubble right back to where it was? It could. It could, because it's not even completely gone right now. Um, to my mind, some of the people who were the biggest contributors to the ugliness are still contributors to the ugliness, but that's a separate question. Um, but there is such an overwhelming desire to start afresh, how we work with each other, think about each other, speak with each other. Will that lead to a constitution? Probably not, but it could lead to a constitutional convention, meaning it could lead to conversations that we've never had because we were so worried about this or that and the other thing. And now I think we understand that if we don't have that conversation, that's the danger. If if Ben-Gurion and Begin both were afraid that having the conversation was going to blow Israel apart, we may now have come to the understanding that not having the conversation will blow us real apart. And that conversation could be even more important than producing any specific document. So if you put a gun to my head and say, you have to bet you know, your life savings on, is there going to be a constitution or not? I say no, but not with a lot of confidence and with a great hope that we will have that quote unquote Philadelphia meeting, that constitutional convention to talk about what are we trying to build here? And if we mm-hmm. have that conversation, it almost doesn't really matter so much whether the document exists or not. It should, but we could get by it with other ways. You wrote, speaking about that national conversation, you wrote on page 181, and this was, you know, probably a couple of years ago, what Israel needs is a national conversation about expanding the narrative that gave the country life. What did you have in mind then? And what do you think that national conversation needs to be about now? Well, back then, back in the old days when I wrote the book, <laughs> um, I think partly what I had in mind there is, for example, the national narrative of Israel was an Ashkenazi narrative. Mm-hmm. It was a male narrative. Yes, we had Hannah Senesh. Yes, we had Golda Meir. Yes, we had Mamashorah at Rachel. Yes, we had all of those people. But fundamentally, we told a story of Ashkenazi men who came and built the country. First of all, statistically, that's just false at this point. There are more Mizrahi slash Sephardi Jews in Israel, Jews of color, you might call them, I suppose, to use an American-like term, um, then there are white Ashkenazim. And right now, you and I are having this conversation at this very minute. They are fighting side by side. And there are Ethiopians there look different. They're fighting side by side. And there's some Druze there. Right. That You can't come back from that battle without an understanding that the Polish gentleman, the German gentleman, the Russian gentleman who came here in the 
30s and 40s and built this country, that's that's over, number one. Number two, it's been a very male-centric country. Yes, I know we've had a woman prime minister and America's never had a woman president. That's true. And we had a woman head of the Supreme Court long before American did. Yeah, all of that is true. It's still a very male-dominated country. And this war has put completely to bed the question of whether or not women should be in combat positions if they want to be. They have fought like lions. They have died, but they have fought in the front lines of combat and they have done unbelievably well. So there's going to have to be a different conversation about Mizrahim. There's going to have to be a different conversation about men and women. Um, religious and secular are fighting alongside each other. I mean, the, the horror of this war is that, um, you know, what happened on Simchat Torah um, so the army was delayed in large measure because a lot of people were at shul and the people that were slaughtered out in the field were obviously doing a different kind of celebration, but that's their right. It's a Jewish state. Um, it was what well, was Simchas Torah's, you know, just a little bit more than a week after Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur was when Tel Aviv came splitting apart because of a machitza in a park. Right. It's very hard for me to imagine that Israelis would ever fight again about a machitza in a park. I mean, both sides were disgusting. I mean, both mm -hmm. sides were wrong. But it's just very hard for me to say, but think, imagine for a very long time that this group would want to do something in a park and secular Tel Avivians would say over my dead body, not in a public space in Tel Aviv. Really? We just went to battle together. Mm -hmm. We can't have Yom Kippur in a park together. And if we, X group, needs a machitza to be able to daven, what's the problem, really? There's a huge space in the back where people can mix if they want. That's what they've always done, by the way, that davening. There was a machitza section, then a completely open section. And it worked for years. It was a it was a shanda that both sides brought this to the place that it was. So I think there's going to be a new conversation here about charedim. And that's, by the way, a positive and a negative. Um, the positive is we've seen movement. As I mentioned before, we've seen 2,000 people sign up. Right. The notion, though, that there's going to be 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, whatever number you use, 15% of the population that is going to be um, exempted from, excused from, bearing the burden, carrying the burden, like shivyon banetel, as we call it here in Israel, equality of the burden, those days are over. I cannot imagine a world in which a Haredi party could try in front of the Knesset to raise a question about a law which would forever exempt Haredi men from the army. Are you kidding me? You're going to live here and have all the benefits of safety that everybody else does, and you are going to say that it's against your principles to defend this country? Whatever misgivings Israelis might have had before, I think that's a non-starter now. I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong, but I think it's a non-starter. So I think that this conversation is a very, very different conversation than the one we were going to have before. Uh, women have to be included. Mizrahim have to be included. Haredim have to tow their weight. We have to figure out a way of making Israeli Arabs feel not tolerated, but welcomed. Nobody wants to feel tolerated. People want to be welcomed. It's always going to be harder for them because this is a Jewish state and they're Muslims mostly and a few Christians. And it's always going to be hard. But um, it's also a wonderful test for the Jews here to see, can we be the kinds of Ba'alei Ba'it? Can we be the people whose home it really is in which people who are not of our tradition and are not of our religion feel honored, welcomed, cared for? Uh, I think that's a great test for us. So it's a whole different conversation than it would have been back then. And it's frankly, Shira, it's a conversation that I really look forward to, because I think if back then we would have thought, yeah, we have to have this conversation because look at the mess we've created when we don't have the conversation. I think now we're going to have that conversation saying, yeah, we have to have this conversation because look how wondrous 
we found out we really are. Now let's talk about where that wonder comes from. It's certainly much more inclusive and potentially much more impactful. Towards the end of the book, you write that what Israel Judaism will ultimately look like, no one can say. But the Judaism that is slowly unfolding in Israel is likely to embody both religion and nationalism in ways that could not unfold anywhere else. To the extent that Zionism's early shapers were convinced that Zionism would liberate the Jews from religion, they would be disconcerted by recent developments. Yet, to the extent that they hoped that sovereignty would allow the Jewish people to reinvent itself, they would have much to celebrate. What do you make of these religious developments, and what does it mean for the future of the state? I think that those tectonic plates are also shifting. So on October 7th, when Flotilla 13, which is an elite commando unit, tried to go back and take over some of the bases that had been captured by Hamas, uh, and Jewish soldiers, Israeli soldiers, were holed up in bunkers, scared to death, because if those bunkers got blasted open, it was all over. And then the Shayetit needed to tell them that it's us. And what could they say that no one else would be able to say? And they screamed through the door, Shema Israel. These were secular kids. But they knew that if they said Shema Israel, the people inside would know, okay, these are Jews. And I was so unbelievably moved by that little video. Um, just like Shema Israel, we're going to be okay. Of all the things that you could say in the Hebrew language, you could have quoted a song, you could have quoted, some, I don't know, a newspaper. I mean, you could have said anything, but Shema Israel, or when you see now these videos, and Israeli social media is obviously in a hyperactive mode right now. Um, you see these videos of soldiers coming out of Gaza. They're tattooed up and down their arms, which is a pretty good indication that they are largely not observant. Putting on a kippah, putting on tefillin. Are they doing it out of a sense of mitzvah, like asher kichanam mitzvah v'tzivanu? Probably not. But they are putting it on out of a sense, I think, not that if they put on tefillin, God will protect them. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's, my God, I've been reminded that I'm part of something much larger than myself. This country is not just a country. This country is a project in a national rebirth. And our people has ways in which it's expressed belonging through liturgy, through holidays, and tefillin. And so these guys come out and you see their tattoos under the tefillin straps. And I say to myself, wow, is that a religious scene or is that a secular scene? You got the tattoos and you have the tefillin. And the answer is yes. And the answer is that it's a Jewish scene. Um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to change here. It's going to, um, I think, again, people are going to start to recognize that a Jewish state that wants to liberate the Jews from Jewishness or religion has no chance. Ben-Gurion didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. Modern Israelis understood that even before October 6th, they understood that. Um, but we're going to reinvent Jewishness, I think, in a way here that we've had to. I mean, for example, there's been an issue of not everybody that was killed in Otef Aza, and especially not everybody that was killed at the party, were halachically Jewish. There were a lot of people who were children of Russian immigrants who were halach. They were they were Jewish according to the law of return because one of their four grandparents was Jewish, but they weren't halachically Jewish. Some of them were in the process, some of them were not, and then they got killed. And the question became, well, where can they be buried? And in certain cases in Beit Sha'an, which has made the press and others, they were not allowed to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. And it led to a public outcry. People are saying they died al-Kiddush Hashem. What does that mean? You can say, how is a rave party al-Kiddush Hashem? It's al-Kiddush Hashem because you're celebrating being an Israeli. So it was a secular event, on a Chag. So what? It was people who felt at home in Eretz Israel and in Medinat Israel as part of Am Israel. 
And in the case of Beit Sha'an, they took down the wall. They said, okay, we made a mistake. She was buried outside the wall. We can't disinter her because of all sorts of halachic considerations. Or they took down the fence. That's a metaphor for, do all the halachic categories that applied when Jews were living as small minorities in European settings, when we were kind of hermetically sealed and we all lived more or less the same way, do those halachic categories all apply in exactly the same way now? Probably not. And that's also another conversation to be had. And here it's going to be people like Rabbi Benny Lau, like Rabbi Seth Farber, like many, many others who I could, Rabbi Tamar Lad Applebaum. I mean, people of all different sorts, Orthodox rabbis, non-Orthodox rabbis, people of all different kinds who are going to, I think, be able to lead this community in a serious conversation of, for those who want a halachic world, how do you maintain a halachic world, but a halachic world that's embracing, a halachic world that's loving, a halachic world that's that's inviting, a halachic world in which people look at what you're doing and they say, wow, that's unbelievable. How do I, how do I get in? Um, how do I, how do I participate in that? That was never anything that the Rabbanut here had any interest in doing. They wanted the Paskin. Um, and I think that now that's going to change too. And I think potentially, God willing, much for the better. I read your book when it first came out in the spring around Yom Atzma'ut, the 75th anniversary of the State of Israel's independence. But many of your ideas have taken on new meaning for me in the current crisis. I know you had an opportunity by the publisher to include in the first publication a brief afterword to address the division among the citizens regarding judicial reform, which hadn't been uh, significant um, when you first wrote the book or first submitted it for publication. But how would you develop some of the ideas in your book even further now, if given the opportunity to, to write an afterword to apply to the current situation? Yeah, there's this guy, uh, Minnie Minosa. I don't know much about him. The only thing I know about him is one phrase that he said. He's a baseball player. And he's alleged to have said towards the end of his life, baseball been very good to me. Um, <laughs> I would say history not been very good to this book. Um, and I got I wrote an afterword because back then we thought the major problem was Smartrich and Ben Greer, who kind of spoke in a thuggery kind of a way. Some of their ideas were okay. Many of the ideas, to my mind, were not. Uh, but Tom Friedman was writing about that the Israel that he had known had died. And I was trying to argue that it had not died. And I gave an example in the afterward uh, under President Jackson, in the United States, there were people in Congress who said the Constitution lies in tatters at his feet. The Republic, they said, is ruined beyond repair. Well, this was before the Civil War. The Republic was not ruined beyond repair. The, ta the Constitution did not lie in tatters at his feet. Um, and I was trying to say to my readers, yes, I'm not a big fan of the Smotrich Benavir government, to put it very mildly, uh, but it's a government. It was voted in. It can be voted out. Um, let's not lose sight of the larger themes that the book talks about. I think that they're still correct. Now, if somebody were to say, you want to write a new afterword, I would actually say no. No. Either I get a chance to rewrite parts of the book or we just leave it the way that it is. And I would love to rewrite parts of the book. I think, look, the two major things that have to be rewritten are the democracy chapter. Um, because the democracy chapter, you know, on one hand, we saw how fragile Israel's democracy is. On the other hand, we saw how deep goes the commitment to Israel's democracy. So it's a, what happened between, let's say, January 1st and October 6th uh, was both a tragic story in Israel, but an, also an unbelievable story in Israel. And of course, the chapter on the Palestinians has to be completely rewritten as well, or at least, you know, added, changed last few pages. But again, I still think, and it sounds probably crazy, has, has the state of Israel been a success 
75 years after its and by the way just to would say you know at the beginning of the book i say well you know the first temple the second this first commonwealth the second commonwealth first one lasted 74 years first the second one lasted 73 years or the other way around um we're coming up to 75 we should be very worried but it was kind of almost like a throwaway line uh, now i would have to add a statement like little did we know i mean little did we know how ominous uh 75 years could be and would be so there's little things that have to get changed throughout the book as well but at the end of the day, even in the midst of this just heartbreaking period, heartbreaking, nobody's sleeping, everybody weeping, too many funerals, too many shivas, too much horror and dread at opening up your phone in the morning to see what the new names are. Um, even in the midst of all of this, if the purpose of the Jewish state was to transform the Jewish people, into a people that believed in itself, into a people that could defend itself, into a people that knew how to take care of itself, and a people that was not willing to be a victim on call. Well, oh my God. I mean, in the worst possible way, we have been reminded of the unbelievable success that the state of Israel has been. So I, I actually think, Shira, even though, yeah, there's a lot of things in the book that, you know, history not been kind to that book, to paraphrase uh, Mini Mimosa, um, yeah, history was not kind to the book. That's okay. I think that history has made it clear that the ideas in the book are actually truer than even I knew. I was just trying to kind of be a mouthpiece for what these great Zionist thinkers had always said. And wow, what they wanted to accomplish, they really did. And now the challenge to our generation is to take both this trauma and this unbelievable recovery and to rededicate ourselves even more to continuing for the next 75 years and making sure that we make their dream an even greater reality. That's on the national scale. On the book scale, if I get a chance to rewrite a couple of chapters down the road, I would happily do that. Time will tell. I think what you just mentioned uh, in terms of the existential condition of, of the Jewish people, I think that was one of the most profound ideas that I took from your book, how the state of Israel really changed that among the Jews. And you write a Jewish state they, meaning the founders, believed, would end the fear of anti-Semitism, the pressure to assimilate, and the Jews having to depend on the conditional welcome of host countries, a welcome that invariably ran out. Then Zionism would breathe life back into the Jewish people itself. It would revive a language, restore cultural creativity, create a proud, self-reliant Jew. Observing what has gone on in Israel over the past month, but also what's going on in the rest of the world, how do you feel about the existential condition of the Jewish people? The existential condition of the Jewish people in Israel is uh, bloodied and tear-rinsed, but very powerful. I think we've been restored to a sense of profound belief in the importance and the sanctity, the sacred nature of what we've built here. Um, and we have to just rebuild it in every sense. We have to rebuild the physical houses in Be'eri and Kfar Aza. We have to help the children who lost their parents. A lot of children, dozens of children lost both parents. We're going to have to help them live to grow up to be as functioning human beings as they possibly can. God willing, when we will um, perform the mitzvah of Pidyon Shvuyim and get those 240 people out, um, I don't know what happens to a seven or eight-year-old child without his or her parents in captivity for months on end. I don't know what kind of a person that grows up to be. But that's not the problem of the parents. That's the problem of the country. Um, that's all of our responsibility. And we're going to have to live up to that responsibility. So I think that uh, creating a proud, self-reliant Jew, 
Absolutely. Restore Jewish cultural creativity. Absolutely. Reviving a language. Absolutely. Breathing life back into the Jewish people. Absolutely. But there were a couple of things that Theodor Herzl got entirely wrong. Uh, he wrote in um, The Jewish State that once the Jews had a state of their own, they wouldn't be seen as parasites anywhere else and anti-Semitism would disappear. Oops, that <laughs> did not happen. And what's happening in the United States today, really, I mean, looks like 1939. I have not been back to the United States since the war started. I'll be coming in a few weeks, as you know. But um, I, I, and I have siblings there and you know everybody's there. I mean, my, I was there for 40 years. Um, my God. Uh, so Herzl was wrong about that. And, and Zionism is not a cure to anti-Semitism. If anything, Zionism kind of looks like an excuse for anti-Semitism. I don't think it makes anti-Semitism worse. The wonderful thing about anti-Semitism is like great viruses, that it morphs. And so it will accommodate itself to any setting. So if it wasn't Israel, they'd find something else. Um, the people protesting in favor of Hamas have no idea what Hamas stands for. The people, the women, the gays, the lesbians who are protesting in favor of Hamas on college campuses, I mean, really, how long would they survive in Gaza? I mean, exactly zero minutes. And so this isn't even about anything serious. It's just about hatred of the Jew, which is always present. And why that is the case, you have to ask historians and scholars much wiser than I. We've talked about it for a long time. We're not going to solve that. Uh, Herzl, by the way, also in Alt Neuland describes the future Jewish state not having an army. Uh, also, oops. We're going to always have an army and we're going to always have to defend ourselves. Um, and so there's certain ways in which the dreams of the early Zionists have come true. The language, I walk into a, an Israeli bookstore and I know that I'm a bit of a sap for these things, but I literally, I walk into the Stymatskis, which is about a 10 minute walk from my house. And it's right on Emirkafaim Street and it's open Motsay Shabbat. So my wife and I go out for a bite after, I always walk into the bookstore. She says, what do you need? So I don't need anything. I just want to see the bookstore. She goes, you saw the bookstore last week. I said, I know, but I want to see it again this week. Because I walk into Stymetsky's and I see hundreds of linear feet of shelves in a language that really 150 years ago, nobody spoke. Nobody. And look at all these books. Some of them are terrible and some of them are great. And some of them are cookbooks and they're travel books. But the bookstore to me is a miracle. That, that miracle has happened. The miracle of the proud self-reliant Jew has happened. As horrible as what's happening in Gaza right now is the Jew who can defend herself and herself is also a miracle not to be scoffed at. We've done all of that. We've accomplished all of that. Um, but we have not changed the existential condition of the Jewish people outside the state of Israel. And that, Shira, I think also affords us a new opportunity to build a new relationship between Israel and the diaspora. It's been a bad relationship. The book that I wrote before this one, which was called We Stand Divided, pretty much tells you everything about the book that you need to know in those three words, I talked about a really a growing crisis between American Jews and Israel. And the, and the fault is on both sides. Um, there's an opportunity here. There are going to be certain American Jews who are out there protesting against what they're calling genocide in Gaza. And that's it. They're lost and that, nothing we can do. But there are what I would call the conflicted committed. I don't know who came up with that phrase, but it's not mine. But someone in the last year or so has come up with that phrase, calling them the conflicted committed, which I think is a great phrase. Um, and the conflicted committed, I think, who are young, who are 20 and are 30, who didn't really know their grandparents well enough or their great grandparents probably at this point, well enough to know what it was like in Europe. Now we're going to have a chance to say, oh, wow, I think I get it in the worst way for the worst reasons in the worst circumstances. Uh, but I think there's an opportunity to say to people who are torn about certain things about Israel, but now understand 
the urgency that early Zionist thinkers felt to create a place where Jews could be safe and protect themselves. That does not mean that they're going to agree with everything that we're going to do. They're not. Not all of us agree. So why should they agree? Uh, but it is going to mean that I think we have an opportunity to rebuild a relationship in which diaspora Jews are more understanding of the nature of um, Zionism and what it was all about. And Israelis, by the same token, have to understand um, that we should speak about Futsot and not Gola. We should speak about diaspora, not exile, um, because of a whole array of reasons. But among them, these are our brothers and sisters, and they have come to our aid, and they are literally right now farming. My friends, I have friends from the States who are actually today farming, and the amount of money that's been sent, and the amount of equipment that's been sent, and the tears that have been shared. Um, I mean, I saw a video that came out from YU at the very, very beginning of the war at Mincha time, um, and, you know, hundreds of people singing Achenu Kol Beit Israel. I must have watched that video, I don't know, 50 times. I'm not exaggerating. Because it felt to me like, okay, Achenu Kol Beit Israel, like Achenu Kol Beit Israel, Achenu Sham and Achenu Po. And I felt so embraced by Mincha at YU, sitting here in Yerushalayim, making sure not to go too far away from my self, you know, safe room back in the days when we were having more sirens in Jerusalem than we are now. Uh, we have an opportunity to rebuild the Jewish people here too. And, and we're going to need great leadership here and there to seize this opportunity and to see the horror of what's happened here, both in America and in Israel. Well, the world and in Israel, not only America. What steps do you think or would you suggest can be taken to try to strengthen that relationship? That's an excellent, excellent question. I think we should all acknowledge that we're scared. This is not the proud bronzed, muscular, farming Israeli, you know, as opposed to the couch potato-y, overprivileged, whatever, American Jew. Because that privileged American Jew, she or he may have more money than the average Israeli, but she or he is also afraid to wear a kippah in the subway. Uh, and I was just thinking, as I mentioned to you a minute ago, I'm coming to the States in a few weeks, and I always wore a kippah in New York. I mean, why would I not? I actually asked myself, should I bring a hat? Maybe I'm not going to wear a kippah on this. I don't even know. So I think we share a sense of vulnerability now. And now what we need is an absence of triumphalism. Show the people who are so critical of Israeli policy, the photographs and the videos of what happened in Be'iri and Kfar Aza, and say to them, what would you do? If it was your kid, what would you do? If it was your five-year-old daughter who's in Gaza without her parents or any family, what would you do to get her back? Just be humble. And by the same token for Israelis to understand, Jews around the world also are impacted by what happens in Israel. What happened in Israel unleashed this wave. I don't think it caused the wave, but it unleashed the wave. We have a responsibility for each other, really. Um, and we need great leadership on both sides. And we're going to have to accept that it's like in any meaningful relationship, a business relationship, good friends, spouses, parents, children, you disagree. Disagree about a lot of serious things and you can disagree for eternity, but you build a relationship out of things that you share and the things that you want in common. Uh, we've really not devoted enough time to that. And I think the rhetoric of the last few years got in the way of our doing that. Um, hopefully that this, this, this tidal wave, hopefully, um, has has washed away some of the instinct towards that rhetoric. That's a first step. And room for more. I thank you so, so much, not just for your deep insights in Impossible Takes Longer, but for our discussion today and for all that you continue to contribute to this crucial conversation. 
congratulations again for winning the Sachs Book Prize. Very, very well deserved. Thank you, Shira, for your excellent read and for the wonderful conversation. Look forward to seeing you in person shortly. Thank you for listening. Dr. Erica Brown, director of the Sachs Herrenstein Center, joins me in expressing our gratitude to the Rohr family, who appreciates the influence of books in shaping the Jewish future. We hope the Sachs Book Prize will catalyze more inspired and inspiring Jewish writing and scholarship. <laughs>